Well, we have hit the midpoint of October. And I know Jason just talked about Thanksgiving, but the midpoint of October for a lot of the culture, maybe many of you as well, begins to turn our focus on the, the holiday of Halloween. And, and Christians don't often know what to do with Halloween, right? Like, it's kind of, it actually has origins in both the occult and the satanic, but also in the church, depending on when and what stream and what country and what century you're talking about. And so we're going to touch on that a little bit this morning. I'll tell you, when I was growing up, um, we did trick-or-treating. We dressed up in these makeshift horrible costumes, and we trick-or-treated to like the half a dozen farmers that we lived around in some extended family. And uh, my parents would talk ad nauseum uh, to these people that they saw once a year. But I have fantastic memories of that. So we sort of replicated that when our kids were little. And I kind of went down the, the, uh, the memory trail, the nostalgia trail. And these were some of our early costumes with our kids. And, um, you know, we just had so much fun. Really, this whole intro was just an opportunity to show you cute pictures of my kids when they were young. <laughs> But uh, yeah, there's a heartbreaking sort of sense of nostalgia. They don't look like that anymore. But, you know, we did the same thing. We would visit with neighbors and extended family members. And then when we moved into the neighborhood we live in now, uh, similarly kind of trick-or-treat around and get to know the neighbors. And, and admittedly, uh, as I said, the culture, the Christian subculture is kind of like, what do you do with Halloween? So we're, we're going to touch on that this morning because I believe our text actually gives us uh, some, some biblical grounding to make discerning choices uh, about how to interact within the culture around this idea of not just autumn, but also Halloween specifically. And so recognize that people land in different places. One of the really profound things about stepping back into Deuteronomy is that it actually deals with things that that are really practical, but sometimes that's direct and literal. In other words, the, the words that we'll read in Deuteronomy this morning apply directly to us today in some cases, and other times it's more principle-driven. The context is different than it was in ancient Israel, and so we're going to draw a principle to apply to our context today. Uh, and just by way of review, it's been a year uh, almost since we've been, or since we started Deuteronomy. And uh, so if you're new to the Bible, or by way of kind of reminding ourselves where we're at with this book, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament, uh, what's known as the Pentateuch, written by Moses, we believe, and uh, it chronicles the life of Israel at a particular point in their history. Now, Israel had been delivered by God out of Egypt through the miracle of the Red Sea, and then been brought to the edge of the promised land that God was going to give them, and they get to the edge of the promised land, and they refuse to go in which was essentially a, an issue of trust and ultimately a belief in God. And so God essentially punishes his people by having them wander in the desert for 40 years, which effectively eliminated the entire generation of the adults at that time, save Caleb and Joshua. And a new generation grows up before him. And so as we come to Deuteronomy this morning, uh, Deuteronomy is actually a, largely a repeat. It's a restatement of the law that existed in the first four books of the Bible to a new generation that they would be familiar with who God is, who they are, and what it looks like to walk with him as they step into the promised land. So one of the uh, major characterizations of this book is that it is a restatement of the law. But it's also, as we talked about a year ago, it's a succession narrative. It's, it's Moses saying as he's coming to the end of his time of leading Israel, hey, I'm going to hang it up, and Joshua, the next leader, is being commissioned, and he's going to step forward, and here's all the things that you need to know to be led by this guy and to be God's people as you move into the promised land. It's a succession narrative. And the third thing is that Deuteronomy can be characterized as a love letter. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is in Deuteronomy, where the Lord says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own 
treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you out of all the peoples on the earth, not because you were the most numerous of peoples, but because, but in fact, you were the most, one of the fewest peoples, but because the Lord loved you. And the whole book has this tone of God's deep love for his people, his patience, his grace, his mercy, and his promise, his faithfulness to his promise to give them the promised land. So last year, if you were here with us last year, we kind of set all of those characterizations, a restatement of the law, a succession narrative, and a love letter in this sort of these motions. Some of you will remember that Deuteronomy provides us a framework of love for a flourishing people. So we said last year to help us to remember what's the theme of this book. But what's interesting is as you get to chapter 18, the book actually takes a very uh, interesting turn as God begins to provide just nuts and bolts, getting down to brass tacks, whatever the cliche you want to throw at it, of what, what Israel, the do's and the don'ts of living out their existence in the promised land. And so we've entitled this series over the next six weeks or so, Practical Matters. Isn't it refreshing to know, even if as we've come out of a series of preaching through this idea of good sex, that the scripture actually does provide teaching on practical matters of the life that we live. And even ancient Israel in the 15th century BC has application to us in the 20th, 20, uh, 21st century here in 2022 for us. So William Tyndale, the great Bible translator, said this, Deuteronomy is a book worthy to be read day and night, never to be out of the hands. It is the most excellent of the books of Moses. And I can only confer, concur uh, with Tyndale as well. So I'm excited to jump back into this book with you. Pray with me this morning, then we'll look at the text. Our God and Father, we, uh, we're excited to endeavor back into Deuteronomy, to learn from you principles that apply to our lives, to be sharpened uh, and, and shaped as your people, the unique people of God, that we would see in your interactions with your ancient people, Israel, uh, principles and things that we can draw on as your people, the church today. God, we thank you for your goodness in giving us the revelation of your word, your word to us. We ask for clarity, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at the, pretty much the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 18. We're going to do that with three points, all double P's, because I was telling Zach, I was just having fun with the alliteration. So our, our first P is that God has a priestly plan. And then our second P is that God ha uh, has some prohibited practices. And then finally, we're going to learn that there is a promised prophet. So a priestly plan, easy for me to say, prohibited practices and a promised prophet. Let's begin. Uh, our first point will come out of verses 1 through 5. Moses writes, The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, will have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They will eat the Lord's fire offerings. That is their inheritance. Although Levi has no inheritance among his brothers, the Lord is his inheritance, as he promised him. That this is the priest's share from the people who offer a sacrifice, whether it is an ox, a sheep, or a goat. The priests are to be given the shoulder, jaws, and stomach. You are to give him the first fruits of your grain, new wine, fresh oil, and the first sheared wool of your flock. For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and minister in his name from now on. The hymn there being Levi, the, the tribe of Le Levi. So in this, in this first section, God reveals this priestly plan. It's actually wider than that. It's for the entire tribe of Le Levi. And we learn from this section that God is a God of order. 
He's a God of order. He is uh, contrary to the nations around them. Israel is an ordered nation. Even the 40 years of wilderness wanderings was an opportunity for God to organize his people. And, and they encamp by tribes around the tabernacle, which is the very presence of himself. God is a God of order. And we'll see in this section that that means a couple of things. Now, that applies to us today as the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. And so the principles we're going to draw out of this section apply to us in, in having an ordered way that the church works and how we care for one another. So the first thing is that God's people were to be a separate people. They were called out. We read that in Deuteronomy 7, right? God says that his heart uh, was set on this people and that he called them out of all the other peoples, that Israel was uniquely called to be his people. Later, uh, later on it says uh, that he is his, their treasured, they are his treasured possession. Peter says of the church that we are a chosen people, that we are a royal priesthood. Paul says in Corinthians that we are to come out and I memorized the King James, so I'll say it that way, be ye separate from among them. God has called together in the church, Big C, expressed through the local church, GBC, an eclectic, diverse people by every category of diversity. We've said it this way in the past. If it wasn't for Jesus, we probably wouldn't hang out with each other. You know, in a church that's big, you've got a lot of common interests. You're on the mission field or in a small church. That's not often the case. Jesus is the only thing you have in common. So God's people were to be separate. Numbers two, uh, God's people were to provide for the leadership. Now this wasn't just, uh, Moses makes it clear here, it's not just the priestly class, it's the entire tribe of Levi. If we go back into, into the, uh, the previous books of the Pentateuch, you learn that the Levites did things like clean up the temple, take care of the animals that were there to be sacrificed, carried the poles and the curtains of the tabernacle, set it up, tore it down. There's all kinds of, if you will, blue collar jobs associated with being a Levite, and of course, all the priestly duties of ministering uh, the sacrifices before God, mediating before God, and so forth. And God, what God is saying is that the populace was to tithe all of their stuff to provide for the Levites, whose job was doing the ministry that they would uh, be provided for. Now, think about what that would mean in a modern context. That would be essentially saying to our entire staff, from Zach and myself, all the way to those that clean the building, to every job here, sell your homes, the church is going to provide housing, and they're going to give us all their best stuff. That includes your assets, your pets, uh, your, your china, great-grandma's china, whatever it is. That all comes to the church staff, and that's all pretty close to what was happening. Now, interestingly, in Numbers 18, where this is uh, further delineated, that Levites were then to tithe the tithes. And so God actually got the best of the best. But the principle here was that the people were to provide for the, for the leadership. Paul says this about eldership in the New Testament. There is a carryover. He says, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who do the, work, the hard work of preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and this quote comes out of Deuteronomy, incidentally, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. I promise you I'm not angling for a raise here. Although I had to laugh when it said the hard work of preaching and teaching after the series we just came through. Uh, it, it's been an interesting couple of months. But here's the point. God is a God of order. 
He calls his people out to be separate. He calls them to be organized in how they provide for each other, how they do the work of the ministry within the cultural context that they were in. And that applies to the church today. We're to be ordered. And so the application point this morning is this, that God's people are to be intentional in their care for each other and their work uh, through the local church. And so am I intentional? We can ask of ourselves. Am I intentional? Am I disciplined, focused on the, the place or the role that God has given me within the local church? Maybe you're uh, the person who helps count the money every week. Or maybe you're the person who waters the plants in the commons or, or weeds the gardens. Or maybe you teach Sunday school. Or maybe you preach from the pulpit a couple of times a year. Whatever we do, it should be uh, organized and intentional and focused and we give our best. That's the principle. Uh, illustrate how that kind of works out in uh, the leadership of, of this church in just a couple of areas. Uh, from a missions standpoint, we do not partner with and support every missionary who expresses an interest in partnering with Groton Bible Chapel. And for one, uh, we, could, we couldn't afford to do it. No church could, right? But we are intentional about building relationships and, and how those ministries, whether they be international or domestic, are chosen and where those partnerships come to, from and to what degree. This principle here is being applied there. Uh, when it comes to hiring and how our staff dollars are deployed and what people are tasked with, we do that with intent and great care. A great amount of conversation, prayer, and strategy goes into that. You'll note as we get into the new year that we'll share things that, that we're uh, bolstering our staff in the area of sort of the, the business and finance and blue collar or the white collar side of, of the church's ministry. And there's a tremendous amount of responsibility honoring this principle with the tithes and offerings of God's people to deploy those monies in a godly ordered way. Think about covenant partnership. Uh, we went through this series in Ephesians, something we'd been building toward for three and a half years, where we called the church to make a commitment, a decision, you and me both, in writing to commit to Groton Bible Chapel as our home church to die to self, to serve each other as a body. And hundreds of you made that commitment. Some of you, perhaps that covenant partnership document got lost on your end table or your dining room table, or others of you may have outstanding questions. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but we spent three and a half years. By the way, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go through Welcome Aboard. We'll bring you up to speed. Or see an elder. We'll uh, uh, um, talk about that with you. But here's the point. We're intentional about, as the elders shared through that season, First Peter challenges us to know the flock. Who are you responsible to minister to and to serve? And so we called each other to commit to being a part of this family. It was a moving time. And we're excited about where that's going. In the new year, we'll have uh, the opportunity for those of you that are covenant partners to hear a little bit more detail about where the church is going. And so we encourage you to uh, continue to pursue that if, if that's still outstanding in your life. Being ordered, following God's priestly plan and much beyond that for us in this context bespeaks God's character and his nature. And so our application again is, am I intentional in the role that God has called me to in the church? Well, that brings us to the, to the next thing. Uh, not only are God's people to be ordered, but there's certain things within their cultural context they're just not supposed to be involved in. That applies to Israel and to us. So let's look at verse 9. It's the middle section of the chapter, and Moses writes, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. And I want you to note the repetition of the word detestable here. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. I don't think we struggle with that one. 
No one is to practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. It's clear in this passage that this is actually a holiness issue. And it's a holiness issue because God is a God of relationship. He wants the primary relationship with his people. And so this is a holiness thing. It begins, this first command first appears in Leviticus 19, where God says, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. It's an issue of holiness. I am the Lord your God. In the New Testament, Peter tells us uh, to turn to the Lord or because the Lord is holy, he who called you is holy, that we are to be holy. And then he quotes Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament thing. One of the passages we looked at in our Good Sex series was from, Deut uh, was from Galatians 5. It lists the sins of the flesh. Things like sexual immorality, uh, immorality and debauchery and so on and so forth. And then the next two items on the list idolatry, and witchcraft. This is a holiness issue, but it really has to do with the fact that God wants to be the authoritative voice in our lives. He wants to be the, the voice that is preeminent in influencing who we are and what we're about. He wants relationship with us. We see this even in the Old Testament, that God's people are to listen to his voice. Listen to the compare and contrast here in Isaiah 8. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And God is saying, rather than consulting a medium or a spiritist or an evil spirit, seek my voice. Seek to hear from me. It's a pretty well-known Old Testament account of King Saul who has been rejected because of his rebellious and disobedient uh, uh, behavior against the Lord who goes to a medium to seek input. And First, uh, First Chronicles 10, 13 tells us that Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and he even consulted, note the emphasis here, a medium for guidance and in contrast, did not inquire of the Lord. And so the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David and Jesse, David, son of Jesse. God takes this pretty darn seriously, that he wants to be the authoritative voice. The issue is that, that uh, in, in essence, what the text is saying, that Saul stooped to the level of even consulting a medium rather than inquiring of Almighty God. There's an absurdity to what's being said here. And so God takes this very seriously. And our application then is that God's people are to be single-minded in their devotion to hearing from God, to listening to the voice of God. We're to be single-minded. I wonder, am I single-minded in hearing God's voice? Do I allow the competition of other influences and other voices to distract me, to, to divide me from hearing the voice of the Lord? And that's easy to happen in our culture. But let me be explicit with lining up this list. This is, by the way, the most comprehensive list of occult stuff in the entire Bible. And so God's people today, brothers and sisters, should not be involved in the occult. We should not 
in, be involved with horoscopes or tarot cards, fortune telling, palm reading, crystals, any of these things. These things are not just of the world, they are of the evil one. They're demonically influenced, the scripture teaches us. And as Christians, those who are devoted to God through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, his word and the voice of his Holy Spirit should be the authoritative voice in our lives. And these things are to have no part in our, in our world. Well, that invites the question kind of that we began with. What about Halloween? What do Christians do where Halloween is concerned? Well, one way to consider Halloween is uh, there's a, a, a kinship to the nature of how we interact with things like Christmas trees, right? Christmas tree has a pagan origin. And yet over the centuries, it's been, particularly in Germany, it's been redeemed by the people of God to be a symbol of light in the home. The tree picturing the cross of Christ allegorically. There's actually children's books written on that. And so Halloween can serve a similar purpose. But let me give you two principles because I think this is an area of Christian discernment. So here's the two principles. Number one, Christians should not be involved in occult practice. So whatever your Halloween observation is or is not, whether you're involved with costumes or parties or trick-or-treating or not, there should be no element of that uh, that involves occult practice in the list of stuff that we talked about this morning, in, in just a moment ago. Christians should not be involved in occult practice. Number two, Christians should be wary of all that blurs good and evil. And so if your interaction with this holiday uh, blurs the lines between good and evil, particularly if you're a parent, then you probably shouldn't engage with that thing. Well, so let me make it a little bit more practical than that. Some of you, and I'll just say this frankly, your world is so much of a Christian bubble, you never interact with, with your neighbors or non-Christians in your life. And I will tell you that in my own life, Halloween has been the number one evening in the entire calendar year where I spend hours with my neighbors just doing relationship and, and talking even about the Lord at times. It has been a huge contact point and wholesome and family-driven. And so for some of you, you, know, you need to throw a, costume, a dumb costume on the kid and get out in your neighborhood and minister to those who don't know Jesus. But we'd be naive to think that Halloween is exclusively a wholesome holiday. We'd be naive to think that there aren't all kinds of occult and satanic things happening, even in our community and on Halloween night. And so these two tests, does whatever I'm doing for this holiday engage or, uh, in any kind of occult or witchcraft type practice in, in any level? And are the lines between good and evil blurred? And they make those decisions. So for some of you, it might mean not being involved in those things. It might mean throwing a, what we used to do, a, a pumpkin day or a harvest party or inviting people to your home to do something that's fun and festive. It's an area of Christian discernment, for sure. But the big point, again, this morning is that we are to be single-minded in our devotion to the Lord and to hearing his voice. And we do that through reading his word. And that brings us to the next section where God unveils. Note that as God has talked about what's forbidden when it comes to prohibited practices for the nations with the occult and witchcraft, now he very much intentionally presents his mouthpiece, his voice. 
In telling Israel to have no part in these other voices, he now comes to verse 15 where he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And I'm going to jump down to uh, verse 18 here. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I commanded him. And listen, verse 19, listen. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. And so God's response to the prohibited practices is in light of the fact that he's promising a prophet that you better listen to, Israel. And this prophet is a prophet like Moses. There's two ideas at work here. Number one, it's a prophet who will succeed Moses in the next generation and will be succeeded by another prophet and another prophet all the way through the, Old Test- or the New Testament apostles and including Jesus himself. Moses is saying that God will not fail to have someone to represent what he wants for his people through the history of Israel going forward. And so the first in that line, of course, is, is Joshua. But as we get to Jesus himself, we, see, we begin to see that Jesus is certainly a prophet like Moses. In fact, there are several things that Moses and Jesus have very much in common. They were both spared from certain death in their infancy. They both renounced the, uh, the royalty that they were due. They both had compassion for God's people, deep compassion, and thereby that led to both of them interceding, even mediating for God's people, standing between a holy God and his judgment for his people. Both Moses and Jesus did that. Both of them had relationship face-to-face, as it were, with God, and both of them mediated uh, their respective covenants, Moses in the old covenant and Jesus in the new. Jesus is a prophet, like Moses. Not just the generational succeeding prophets, but Jesus is unique. But Jesus is also a prophet who is greater than Moses. Hebrews 3 tells us Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder is more worthy of more glory than the house. That is infinitely more glory. And this section of Deuteronomy, interestingly enough, is referenced in the New Testament 42 times, mostly in John's Gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, and the book of Hebrews. And all of that is meant to help us understand that Jesus is, in in that word picture, greater than Moses, like the builder of a house is over the thing that he builds. He is creator God in human flesh. Jesus is unique as the capital P prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He is God's mouthpiece. Jesus says multiple times in the first several chapters of John's gospel, the words that I speak are not my own, but they are the words that the Father has given me. And when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees who say, who is this fellow? We have Moses and the prophets. Jesus' response is striking. He says this, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is actually Moses on whom you've put your hope. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me, referencing Deuteronomy 18, 15. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, you know, you're deferring to Moses and calling me a blasphemer, but yet Moses is the one who's indicting you because Moses prophesied my coming. And then I'm the capital P, prophet. But nowhere is it more clear in the Bible that Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, 15 than in Peter's sermon to the Jews at the end of Acts chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. He begins by quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, or 18, 18. 
Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have foretold these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And God raised up this servant, Jesus, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. And by the way, that last line, to bless you by turning you from your evil ways, that's a sermon in itself. That it's the blessing of God that he confronts our sin. But I digress. Jesus is a prophet like Moses, but he is superior to Moses. And Jesus is superior in particular in everything necessary for your salvation. In the gospel itself, the acts of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection are the ways in which he was superior. Think about it. Jesus, unlike Moses, actually provides salvation himself through his death on the cross for you, uh, making available forgiveness of sins. Jesus rises from the dead of his own accord. The New Testament actually teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all were involved in raising Jesus to new life, validating that sacrifice that you might have eternal life and new life here in the time that you've got on this planet. Jesus, unlike Moses, ascended to heaven where he rules at the right hand of God the Father. And his ministry continues today. The New Testament teaches that he actively makes intercession for you and for me if you're a believer in Jesus. I'm so thankful for that ministry of Christ. I hope you are too. Jesus' revelation of who God is did not discontinue when he died, but continued through the New Testament writers. And ultimately, Jesus, unlike Moses, will return for us and will usher us into the very presence of God the Father. Jesus embodies the holiness of God. Jesus fulfills the law and the symbolism and, and, uh, of Moses and his mediating the Old Covenant. You see, there was this expectation in the Old Testament coming through the Testaments and even into the New Testament that God was going to send this great prophet, capital P. There was also an expectation that there was going to be a Davidic king, a messianic king who would come. And there was an expectation that the high priesthood would, would uh, be uh, perpetuate into eternity. What the apostles and the prophets and the early saints didn't understand was that all of that was in one person, prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that as you look at the New Testament, we're going to be talking about this in just a few weeks, that's a huge part of why the explosion of the worship of the angelic host when Christ is born in Bethlehem. They're blown away. Peter hints at this in his letter. More we could say on that, but it would get to our application. God's people are to be expectant to hear his voice. We should be expectant to hear his voice. And sometimes I'm so stinking cynical. I come to church or the things that I'm involved in doing ministry, and maybe you're part of caring ministries, maybe you're in Celebrate Recovery or... We're, we're piloting this new marriage ministry that my wife and I are a part. And maybe you come to these ministries and your expectation is that God can't fix what's broken in you or your marriage or relationships, that God's not able to work. And I have that attitude sometimes. I come to church and, you know, can God really do the, the miraculous? Shame on us, shame on me. God's people are to be expectant that he's going to move and do powerful things and expectant to hear his voice in our own lives. 
How do we demonstrate this level of expectation? Well, we've talked about it. We're to be in his word. This is how we know the revelation of who he is and who I am. About a year ago, I challenged you to get up 15 minutes earlier and read your Bibles. I was stunned by the amount of people that wrote or texted and said, I'm doing that. How's that going? I will tell you that September has been a challenging month to be up regularly, routinely with that same amount of time. So I'm challenging myself this morning and each one of us, let's do that. But the other thing that's involved in being expectant kind of flows from everything we've talked about this, to this point this morning. And it's removing the false voices. It's getting the distracting voices out. Listen to how this passage ends. I'm just going to read um, wrong book. We've got to be in Deuteronomy here. I'm just going to read verses 20 and 21. It says this, or actually just verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not spoken to him or commanded him to speak, or who speaks to you in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. The language of the execution of the false prophet ought to bring to mind Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, this is hyperbole. Jesus doesn't actually mean to remove your eye because obviously most of our sin, if we're honest, occurs in here. And so having one eye, we can continue to sin. The, the, the principle is take drastic action. It's the same thing he's saying here. Don't put up with the false prophet, with false teaching. You see, all of what we are considering here in Deuteronomy 18 is about trusting and listening to the right voice. Being intentional, being single-minded, and being expectant that God is working and expecting to hear his voice. And that includes being willing to remove distracting voices. Now, for some of us, that mean, might mean something like not making that purchase that, is gonna, that you really, really want, but it's going to put you in debt such that you can't participate financially in God's kingdom. Or it might mean uh, uh, ending that relationship that you know, particularly over the last month, God is convicting you, is not honoring to the Lord, and is distracting you from his work in your life. Or it might look like having coffee with that trusted brother and sister in Christ and finally sharing all of that secret sin with that person, the thing that nobody else knows. It could be a, a host of things. What does it look like to remove the false voices? You see, that's what repentance is. That's what faith is. That's what walking with God is. It's a turning around and listening exclusively to his voice. It's a running into his arms. It's a yielding to his rules, if you will. Even if it goes against my instincts and my impulses, even if the culture tells me I'm crazy, even if it hurts, being intentional, single-minded, and expectant that as I do that, God is going to work, that he is going to speak into my life. One last thought, and we're going to conclude and sing a final song together. At the very beginning of Deuteronomy, in verse 2 of chapter 18 and verse 18 of Numbers chapter 18, it says the same thing. We kind of glossed it this morning. It says this. It says, the Levites have no portion or inheritance in Israel because the Lord is their portion. Jesus is the prize. And Jesus wants to be the authoritative voice in your life about who he is, about who you are, and about what it means to walk with him. He 
loves you desperately. And when he tells us to remove the false voices, he's telling us that his desire is that we would look up and turn to him, that he might tell us all of those things, who we are, who he is, what it means to relate to a loving God through the Lord Jesus Christ. What will it mean for me to listen to his voice, to really hear his voice? What changes need to happen that he might tell me what he needs to tell me? Let's stand and sing together.